Welcome everybody to Ancient Heroes. I'm Patrick and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Adrian Goldsworthy, who is a historian who received his Doctor of Philosophy in Ancient History from Oxford. He's taught at Cardiff University, King's College and the University of Notre Dame in London. He's the author of many books, including How Rome Fell, Caesar, Hadrian's Wall, Philip and Alexander, as well as a brand new book, which we'll be talking about today called Rome and Persia, the 700 year rivalry. Thanks for joining us, Adrian. How are you? Fine. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Great, great. Well, I should say before we hop into the Rome and Persia subject, um, Philip and Alexander, the book, as you know, I'm a big Alexander the Great fan. And I went through a stage where I pretty much read every good book I could find on Alexander. And that is absolutely my favorite Alexander <laughs> the Great book that I've come across. It's it's truly incredible. You know, it kind of blows my mind that you were able to synthesize all that information. And if I ever have a question about Alexander the Great or just want to read about, you know, a certain period in his life um, or just ancient Mastodon in general, your book is the first thing I go to because it does such a good job of sort of laying out the situation and talking about some of the controversies and myths versus facts. It's just a, it really is just an incredible uh, work. So I just wanted to say that off the top because um, it, it definitely is in my top three or four books about ancient history in general. And I've had it next to my bed for probably two years now. So uh, it's, it's great. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, the, the thing with writing a book like that is there is so much terrific stuff to go on in the first place. And I think maybe because I came as a more of a Romanist, not, you know, I haven't done that much on that period, that, that it was easier for me to step back and try and put it all in perspective, perhaps than the specialists who have got so used to studying the real detail that sometimes they forget that not everybody's had the chance to spend 30 or 40 years of their life doing this. So that think, was, was the aim, I think, to give a bit of bit of perspective, really. Yeah, that's and that's exactly what it does. And that's why I like it, because, you know, the, the, the specialists and things are great, but sometimes I want to kind of see a... Um, I want to see it all laid out in a way where we see different perspectives and I can sort of get a sense of what historians really think about this. And um, your book just does a tremendous job of giving the context and also making it entertaining and easy to read. So, um, I, yeah, I just wanted to say that. And again, uh, it should be because it's it's a, you know, it's a heck of a good story. Yeah, these are yeah. dramatic events. These are interesting. You've got all these different cultures, all these places. There's a lot going on. And I mean, it was frustrating with the Philip sections where you felt there was there was a story to tell as you could in the detail about Alexander, but you can't because you don't have the information for Philip. Right. And you think there's some incredible stuff going on that would be just as dramatic but it's skimmed over so quickly. You know, that that great um, contrast that there are years in Philip's life where you don't know where he is and what he's yeah. doing, whereas you always know where Alexander is and what he's up to. Well, and I think that taking that approach of Philip and Alexander was smart as well because you really need that context. There's obviously so much hype around Alexander, but in truth, you know, you need to understand kind of the situation that he was raised in and all these things in this, in the, the stage that Philip helped set. Um, and so I thought that was a great kind of theme to work it around as well. Um, and uh, my, my wife and I actually went to Greece and did a road trip through Greece this past year in last October. 
and ended up in Thessaloniki and went to the different archaeological sites. And it was just, uh, you know, um, it was great. And I was referencing back your book the entire time. So, um, okay. So hopping to the latest uh, title, uh, Rome and Persia, the 700 year rivalry. Um, so I believe, am I right to say that this just came out in the last couple of days? Is that? Uh, yesterday, I think, was the official release date in the, in the U.S. It's There's been the British edition, which is called The Eagle and the Lion, but it's exactly the same book. Hmm. That came out in July. But then oh, the okay, basic cool. books edition came out yesterday, the 5th of September. Okay, so, great, great. Um, yeah, I saw that on Amazon and I was like, okay, this is a, a big time. Happy to have you on. So I guess my first question is just sort of, how did you, like you said, I think you're, um, you, you've written more about ancient Rome uh, and kind of how did you come to this particular theme of Rome and Persia um, for this book? It, it was a mixture. Part of it is in a sense, it's the logical continuation of the Alexander book, mm. because obviously you've looked at that great encounter between a power from Northern Greece and the big empire in the East. and the Romans talk about Alexander all the time. They're obsessed with him. They're the people who title him the great. That's when it really becomes established as a, a standard thing. And any Roman commander or emperor even vaguely starts to travel beyond the Eastern Mediterranean. People start talking about Alexander the Great. And they're expecting the same things. And yet, of course, it doesn't happen. Mm. Nobody does what Alexander did. And that's partly because the combination of all the factors of the personality, the army, the times, the political conditions created that moment. But also, as I look more closely, I came to the conclusion that they didn't really try. So partly it was to try and look at the other big confrontation because the Romans live alongside a major empire with the same heartland as the old Achaemenid Persian Empire, first ruled by the Parthians, then by the Sasanian Persians, and their neighbors for over 700 years. And they fight a lot, but neither side tries to destroy the other. There isn't this, let's see if we can get to India. Sort of thing of any, mm. you know, um, so it was partly that. It was also uh, the publishers came to me with, could I write about the, the last sort of period of rivalry between the Romans and the Sustainian Persian, the Eastern Roman Empire, as it is then. Mm. And I thought about that, but actually said, well, I don't think you can understand that unless you know what's happened before. And then I looked and thought, well, has anybody actually looked at all of this contact and try to tell that story and they haven't. So just everything moved and suddenly it seemed like it's a little bit of a gamble in terms of a topic for a book because everybody's heard of Alexander the Great. If you're at all interested in the past, let alone in ancient history, you know Alexander and you, you know, you think, oh, that'll be interesting. But this is a story where the personalities come and go. It's covering seven and a half centuries. It's about a topic that is a little bit unusual, but it's also about this other empire that's out there that coexists with the Romans and is very large, very sophisticated, very powerful, doesn't in the main get to tell its own story, but still is worth examining, worth trying to understand, because it's just different from anything else that's out there. Mm -hmm. So all of that came together. And in the end, I thought, this will be interesting. And I knew it was going to be one of those books where I would learn a lot while doing it, because there were plenty of aspects of this I'd never really thought about before, or I'd skimmed over in the past, you know, knew a little bit about, but no sort of detail. So, uh, and again, thankfully, like the, the Philip and Alexander book, there's a lot of very good detailed scholarship on aspects of it, but people haven't really pulled it all together. Awesome. Awesome. Well, so for someone who we haven't talked about Rome on, on this podcast in, in some time, and 
and I've really been more focused on ancient Greece in general. I'm sort of slowly working my way um, to Rome. Can you give us an idea when you talk about 700 year rivalry, what, what the basic kind of timeline is that you looked at? Essentially, we start really with the first contact between a Roman um, governor who happens to be the man who will go on to become the dictator Sulla, but earlier on in his career when he's not that famous, is there in intervening in Cappadocia in an allied kingdom, and a Parthian ambassador goes to him because he hears there's a Roman there. And the Parthians, of course, they're an empire that's emerged from overthrowing the Seleucids. So again, we're back to Alexander yet again and his successes and how that empire he creates fragments quickly, but the Seleucid Empire is probably the largest part geographically, and then it's overthrown, and partly the Romans are pushing from the west, the Parthians come from the east, and then they meet. So that first contact is in the 90s BC, and it's so um, relatively unimportant, it seems, at the time. We can't even say precisely which year it happened. It all depends on how we understand Sulla's career. And it's only told because it happens that someone who goes on to be famous is there. One suspects if another Roman governor had had some contact with an ambassador, we'd be lucky to know about it because there aren't even. But that then leads a generation or so later, you have Crassus, the the, the plutocrat, the big the ally of Pompey and Julius Caesar in the so-called First Triumvirate, goes off, gets command in Syria, leads an army into Parthian territory and suffers defeat and death at Carhai. So that's in 53 BC. But you've then got the rise of the Roman Empire, Augustus becoming the first emperor after their series of civil wars. You have the empire lasting for centuries, living for the next 200 years or so alongside the Parthians. Then the Parthian dynasty is overthrown by the Sasanian Persian dynasty. But it's just, it's a change of royal family, basically. There's no, the empire itself is essentially the same. So you're then pushing through into the third century, fourth century AD. During the fifth, the Roman Empire not only splits into Western and Eastern halves, but the the Western Empire disappears by the end of the 5th century. It's simply gone. And you've got emperors who consider themselves Roman, but they don't control Rome. They live in Constantinople. Mm. That's their capital. But it's still, as far as they are concerned, whilst the Greek influence is heavy, because always this has been the part of the empire that's essentially been Hellenic anyway, nevertheless, they call themselves Roman and they still have Roman law in Latin. Is, is it was, That then moves through into the 5th century, where you've got a relatively calm period, into the 6th, where they start fighting each other a lot. And then the 7th century AD, you have this titanic struggle between them in the end, where for the first time ever, the Sasanian Persians look as if they're on the verge of destroying the Eastern Roman Empire, but they can't quite do it. They're defeated by the Romans. Then within just a couple of years, you have this explosion of the Islamic Arab armies come from further south, and they sweep away the Sasanian Empire altogether. And the Romans lose virtually all their main eastern territory. So Egypt goes, Syria goes, Palestine goes, You know, Jerusalem ceases to be in the control of a Christian Roman Empire. And most of North Africa will go in time. So within a few years, less than a decade, after this last big big war between the two empires, one's gone completely and the other one's just really now another medieval kingdom. It's, it's, it's big, it's quite sophisticated, it has dreams of glory, but those dreams are never going to be fulfilled. It's not a world superpower anymore. So it's, it's that great saga. So it, as I say, it's, it's a long, long period of time. Yeah, wow, wow. So, um, I mean, when we look at the Greeks, you know, I kind of think of, the Greek Persian rivalry and the fighting over 
um, kind of the, the space in the middle and the Eastern Mediterranean. But when it comes to the Romans, I always think of them expanding West and getting all the way to mm. England and that, that sort of thing. I mean, is, can you talk a little bit about just sort of the rise of Rome and how, you know, was that, was the way that they expanded and what their interests in expanding were, was that shaped at all by the power of the, the Persian empires to the East or um, why were they more interested in going that way than, than like Alexander had gone uh, into the East? It's partly from where they start. Obviously Italy there is a peninsula sticking down almost in the center of the Mediterranean. Mm. So you look in different directions and they're, Rome turns from being just an Italian power into more of an overseas empire in its conflict with Carthage, this Phoenician colony established modern-day Tunisia that's become an empire in its own right. And you have the series of Punic Wars where the Romans end up with a province in Sicily, then Sardinia, Corsica, the Spains, and they start to get involved elsewhere. And there's, there is a sense of them being, yes, they're aggressive, yes, they, they like military glory and conquest, but they're almost sucked into it. There's an element where it's it's a rivalry that leads them to other places. And then you stay there because after all, you know, Hannibal, who famously crosses the Alps with his elephants to get to Italy, starts in Spain. Mm. So the feeling is, well, you can't leave Spain unoccupied. We need to make sure this doesn't happen again. But of course, Polybius, the Greek historian who writes in the second century BC and gives us the best picture of the Republic at that time and an outsider's view. He's a hostage at Rome for quite a while. He gets to know some of the noble families. He participates in some of the Roman campaigns. He writes his universal history to explain to rather baffled Greeks just how the Romans have come to dominate the Mediterranean world in, in a generation or so. How are these, you know, these barbarians? They're not Greeks. They're not like us. They try their best, but they're still not us. And yet they've defeated us. And he he looks at this and tries to explain it in Rome's political constitution that is more balanced, so it doesn't have all the revolutions, the stasis that, that plagues Greek city-states so often. And then their military system is more efficient. Less, he pays less attention. One of the, the big differences between the Roman Empire and just about any other empire in history is that they make people Roman wherever they go. Mm. Yes, subjects treated badly. Yes, there are slaves, all this sort of thing. But People you've defeated very quickly gain status, particularly their aristocracy, but more broadly, they become Roman, they become part of the imperial enterprise, they become part of the Republic. So even before the war with Hannibal, the, the citizen manpower for Rome is you know, more than 10 times bigger than Athens at its height. It's, it's just something on a completely different scale, because whereas Greek cities tend to be quite jealous of their citizen rights... The Romans free slaves, make them citizens. They um, give it to former enemies, this sort of thing. So the Romans are turning the world Roman in a way that other empires don't do. And later on, you'll get emperors who are from Spain, from North Africa, but they're still Roman. You know, that's that's what matters. So Rome has expanded. And yes, you get the big wars. They tend to try, they're quite reluctant to occupy territory and have provinces where they need a garrison and they run things because... They don't really want to go to the trouble. You know, this is a republic with very minimal resources, no real bureaucracy. Its soldiers are citizens who volunteer, go off and fight, but then go back home. They're not professionals. So they really don't want, so there's a reluctance. But you have, again, the same as you have the, the wars with Carthage that end up with Carthage's complete destruction. You similarly have wars with um, Antigua and Macedonia. And eventually, 
they, that's defeated. The kingdom's abolished, and you break it up into four regions, but they can't cope, so it eventually becomes a Roman province. But they really don't want to do that. It, it takes a couple of generations to do this. They've had a conflict with the Seleucids because the Seleucids have done what any successor feels the right to do. They've intervened in Greece and come into contact with the Romans, so you have that war. The Ptolemies, of course, in Egypt never fight the Romans. They ally with them early on because they see them as a useful counterweight to their rivalry with the other far more dangerous enemies that's Macedonia and the Seleucids. But one of the interesting things, the Romans sort of gradually get sucked into, first of all, Macedonia, then a presence in, they go to provinces in Asia for a while, but then they're, they're bequeathed the kingdom of um, Asia by one of the kings who dies before he has an heir. And to their surprise, a Roman politician persuades them to, well, let's make a province. You know, they give most of it away, but they start. So it's, it's, it's not really planned. It's not really coherent, but it's very opportunistic. And mm. the Romans benefit from it because this is an area that's so wealthy. So if you go and fight a war and you manage to defeat the Seleucids, then the glory is far greater because everybody's heard of the Seleucids, whereas you know, who's heard of the, the Aidui or the Sequani or some tribe in Gaul? The Seleucids are big, the Seleucids are rich, so they'll give you lots of money. And you have Manlius Vulzo, this, this commander who arrives too late to fight the war against Antiochus um, of the Seleucids, so instead picks a fight with the Galatians and just defeats them without authority to loot them and, and go home. But if you look at a map, you can see the sort of heartland of the Seleucid Empire is really stretches from Syria, Palestine, the coast, right the way to the Tigris, Euphrates, the big city, Seleucia on the Tigris, which you know is next to Antioch and Alexandria in terms of sheer size. It's, it is one of the biggest Greek cities in the entire world. That ends up in the Parthian Empire and Persian Empire and is never permanently taken by the Romans, whereas Antioch and those other... In one sense, you could see that area as having more in common with itself. So you almost expect one empire to have all of it. But in fact, the boundary as it develops between the Parthians and the Romans, and then later on the Persians, is in the middle. It cuts it through. It's near the Euphrates. Sometimes the Romans push beyond that for quite substantial periods. But you'd see culturally, you know, there are still major links, not simply between the Greek communities, but also there's a big Jewish um, community in Seleucia, in Babylonia, that... <clears throat> up until the destruction of the temple in AD 70, is annually sending delegations to make offerings as part of the temple cult, because that's that's what you do. That's part of your faith. So it's, it's an odd mixture. The boundary between the two isn't really at a sort of an obvious place. Okay. It's just, a, a, it happens because you've got the Parthians coming, moving, pushing eastwards, the Romans push, uh, sorry, pushing westwards, the Romans pushing eastwards, and they both reach a point where they come into contact with each other when both are close to the height of their power. They're both very successful. They're both very confident. And that leads to friction and conflict early on. But then it also quite quickly, there's a recognition that, oh, this is a bit different. These people aren't like all the others we've defeated. They're a bit bigger. They're a bit more formidable. And also it's convenient politically. You know, Augustus completes the, the occupation of much of Europe up to the Rhine and the Danube, completes the conquest of Spain, but he doesn't ever send a big expedition against the Parthians or in the East. That, and from then on, wars of conquest are very rare for the Roman Empire, because politically it doesn't make so much sense. And they've also reached the conclusion, we've got all the bits worth having. 
anything else is going to be too expensive to be um, justify the you know any sort of revenue we get back isn't going to balance it out. So, and something similar is probably happening with the Parthians. They think actually, you know, we've we've been really successful. Let's let's hold on to this because it's just too risky to risk to to face a major war against the Romans. So there's political aspects, there's internal problems and threats as well. But it, it almost happens like that. It, it's not neither side really plan this. But it's just it, it it the contact occurs at that interesting stage in the development of each one. Interesting. Well, so with the Parthian Empire, which you've referenced a few times, to be honest, I I think I've heard the term, but I, I wouldn't have been able to tell you th- these were Persians um, and that this was sort of the uh, in some ways the successor empire to the you know previous Persian empires. Um, can you talk a little bit about? who the Parthians were and kind of how they rose to, to power? It, it's interesting because the name Parthia was a region of the, the Achaemenid Persian Empire. So when you've got in Herodotus, you know, the big list of all the armies Xerxes assembled, there are Parthians there, but they're mm. Parthians from that region of Parthia, one of these northern satrapies near the near the Caspian Sea, really. It's up, up, up there. Um the Parthians that would become the Parthians of the empire haven't arrived yet. They're a group of a charismatic leader and his warriors from the steppes, from one of these nomadic tribes or semi-nomadic tribes, or at least this is the story, that move in, that take over Parthia at a stage when Parthia has itself just broken away from the Seleucid Empire. And there's this period of fragmentation where some successor kings aren't strong enough to keep it all together. So you get the Bactrian, you know, a very Greek kingdom, but it's in Afghanistan, that area breaks away. The Parthia breaks away at much the same time. Then it's overrun by Arsaces. That might be a title, might be a clan name, might be, we don't really know, but he gives his name to the Arsacid Parthian dynasty. And again, there was nothing to, you know, there was no obvious sign that this group of nomads that have broken into one of the old empires was going to go on to greater things. And it varies. They have their periods where the Seleucids for a while almost reconquer the area and subject them, at least get them to accept the principle that they're still part, they're still ruled by the Seleucids. But then when the Seleucids become weak again, and of course, you've always got this draw back towards the heartland of Alexander, you know, you back to your rivalry with the Ptolemies, back to your rivalry with the kingdoms that develop in Asia Minor. That's almost the sort of proper war to fight, the proper thing you should be doing as a, a Hellenic king. So then the Parthians expand again and they start to take neighboring provinces and they get on a roll. And it's like a lot of empires. I mean, you could say the same about, about Philip II of Macedonia. You get the combination of a bold, capable leader confused times and a good army, and they can start making gains very quickly. And if they've got the diplomatic skill to convince people that it's worthwhile staying with us. So uh, in a sense, there's an element of the Parthians that come from outside the Persian empire that, that aren't Persian, but the language, everything else is from a section within the empire. And they obviously are joined by lots and lots of people who've been former. So there is never really a sense this is a sort of indigenous rebellion against Greek rule mm. because they're also joined by Greek communities or when, you know, and they Seleucia on the Tigris remains one of the main cities of the empire as do other Greek settlements. So um, it, it's, it's far more complicated. They're, they're a successful empire because they persuade lots of people that, you know, it's worth accepting us. It's worth working with us. And you have these big clans that may have, 
Parthian noblemen at their head, but groups like the Suren and the Karen and the Miran, who will become established in the less urbanized areas of the eastern part of the empire, but control that territory right the way through the period. But essentially, the Assassin Parthians, the, it's the name of the dynasty that becomes um, the ruling group. And at the head is the king of kings. And that emphasizes the way the empire works because it's an empire of other kingdoms. So you've okay. got big regions like Medea, um, Armenia sometimes, Osirene, places like that. But even within those areas, there are often even more local sub-kings that goes down. And then you have the big self-governing cities like Seleucia. Then you do a deal with them. So it's you're holding together a fairly disparate group by military force, but also by giving them enough nice things, giving them enough favors, treating them well, offering them protection, all of this sort of thing. So it's it's a although it's very successful and it's quite civilized and organized, like the Romans, it does everything in a different way because this is a different different country, different um, economy, different climate in many areas. You know, there are there's probably more variety in terms of different types of land there than you would find in the Roman Empire. And, and the basic truth is the Roman Empire gets more rainfall. It's a lot greener. There are far more areas where you can produce enough food to support a big population. So you know, the Roman Empire has a population of 60, 70 million. Um, the, the Parthian Empire probably is 10 to 20 million at the most, probably less, you know, at the lower end of that. And they're scattered and there's areas of mountains, there's areas of semi-desert, there's areas of steppe, but there are also some areas that are very well cultivated. So it's it's a different type of thing. Was it um culturally, I mean, did it did it present itself as uh, the next generation of the Achaemenid Persian Empire at all? Or was it was it connected to to that era culturally or religiously or anything like that or politically, or was it uh, also somewhat Greek in the way that it operated? In, in many ways, the Greek influence is easier to see because mm. they take on the standards of coinage of the Seleucids and even the imagery has more in common. It's modified, you know, you have, and you can see the development of how the different king of kings are, are depicted on their coins, but, um, you know, they're sitting on the omphalos, the, you know, the navel of the world, the Delphic uh, Apollo associated with it, that then turns into a stool. They're holding a bow rather than necessarily anything else. So it's a mixture. There's very, there is certainly no positive invocation of the past other than from Roman sources. There are claims that the Parthians, um, when they're negotiating with the Romans, say that, well, look, we're the heirs of the Persians, therefore we want all the territory the Persians once ruled. And mm -hmm. the Romans will say that the Sasanians say exactly the same things later on. There's nothing directly in any Parthian or Sasanian source, such as they are, that ever makes that claim. So is this a Greco-Roman author, author archaizing consciously to compare them to Xerxes or Darius or whoever it might be? Or... Um, are they? Or I mean, you can see it in so many ways. It could be that the Parthians are saying, "Well, the Romans will understand this if we say that to them." So let's say you, you've got to remember within this area, there's um, you know a nice some um, a Babylonian tablet I quote in the the Alexander book where 
it reports in the usual way that one of these temple cults, we've been recording observations of the heavens, and then it talks about disorder in the army of great King Darius, his defeat, and then before the end of the month, and it's Alexander, the king of the world, en enters Babylon. You've, it's very much the king is dead, long live the king. Because you've got this culture that is far, far older than the Achaemenid Persians, that's been doing things that way for centuries and centuries and doesn't change. Hmm. And the Persians don't make them change. Alexander doesn't make them change, nor do the Seleucids, nor do the Parthians. So in the same way, you have a thriving Jewish community in Babylonia as well. And you have these Greek cities that keep their laws, keep their institutions, keep the language, the culture. Um, some Parthians, you know, there's a famous story of um, when Crassus's severed head is brought to the Parthian king that they're, they're watching a performance of Euripides of Bacchae. And it's used as a prop in the, the state. So at times, Parthian monarchs clearly perceive themselves as at least enjoying aspects of that Greek culture they don't ever consciously evoke that. But on the other hand, there presumably is a memory of these past empires, of past glories, that's probably become mythologized to a fair degree of the sort of great and noble, wise, just king mm. um, that you can buy into. But it isn't, it certainly isn't a, a, a sort of a native rebellion to, to overthrow Greek rule. And nor really is there opposition to the Romans based around that. Because as I say, they, they include so many different groups. Um, it's inevitable that obviously we're more likely to get an inscription in Greek, say, with right. things that are familiar and we understand to give us an impression of a Greek city under Parthian rule that looks very much like a Greek city under Roman rule. Um, then Parthian culture appears primarily to have remained oral, to be about songs and celebration of the past in that respect, which of course doesn't survive in any real form other than as echoes in later similar um Verse. So we don't, we never fully get their perspective, but in the way they behave, it's, it's certainly not, it's only a rejection of that Greek period, which after all, you know, is a long time. Um, the, even the Seleucid Empire, whilst it's only at its height for a century or so, that's still a long period of time. Yeah. And that there isn't much direct memory. Um, and even with the Sasanian Persians who are, Persian speakers rather than Parthian speakers. So again, Persian is not spoken throughout the empire. And they build these monuments, and there are these wonderful rock carvings and monumental inscriptions of deeds are next to monuments of the Achaemenids, right next to them. So, you know, you, you see it, there it is. They never mention them. Mm. So, but on the other hand, why would you put it there unless you think this is significant? So right. um, it's it's how how do you read the subtlety of it all? How do, how do people mix together all these different, senses of identity and images of power, this sort of thing. Interesting. Well, and so in your, um, in your research for the book, how did you sort of balance the, the sources and manage that process? Because I would imagine that there's far more about Rome, the Roman empire that's easily accessible um, and written down and stuff like that. than there is about some of the uh, Persian empires that you're talking about. And that may not be the case, but that's just my impression. So I wonder how did you kind of go about um, writing the book without making sure that it wasn't sort of just the Roman perspective on all of these things? Uh, no, you're, you're right. I mean, there's by comparison, there's just so little, there is something particularly for about the Sasanian Persian Empire. There are some monuments they um, set up. There's the big, this big um, inscription, which is 
called the Res Gestae of, of Chapeau, that's compared to the, the Res Gestae of Augustus. And it talks about his wars against the Romans, defeating successive Roman emperors, how many Romans were in the army, he defeated and smashed, captured this city, that city, so and so, this sort of thing. Um, but that's rare. And there are, in Armenian medieval literature, you get memories of this period that are obviously focused on Armenia, but because Armenia has so much to do with these empires, pres preserves a tradition, but it's much later. There are medieval Arab sources that go back to Sasanian traditions in particular and are fairly favorable to quite a few Sasanian leaders. Though, interestingly, it shows how successful the Sasanians were in um criticizing their, their predecessors, you know, the people they'd overthrown to make themselves king of kings, they reduced the length of the Parthian dynasty to be about half the length it actually was, just in the in this sort of memory. Um, but it is, overwhelmingly, we get our information from the Roman side. Um, and that's a problem that you can't, you can't avoid. You've got to face up to it and admit that's how it is from the start. So we will always know more about the Romans and more of the Roman figures in it can come across as, as living, breathing personalities rather than simply a name, the great king of kings who did X, Y, and Z. On the other hand, you get traces. I mean, there's, there's some fascinating stuff in Josephus, for instance, you know, who's a, a Jewish, well, becomes a rebel, changes sides, becomes a Roman citizen, writes history of the Jewish war. In his antiquities of the Jews, he has quite a long digression on these Jewish brothers who turn bandit in Babylonia, but then get recognized as sort of, not the full satrap, but local authorities by the Parthian king. So you're getting a sense of somebody else telling you about what's going on in the empire. And one other thing to remember is that even though we think, well, we've got lots of evidence from the Roman side, there are huge gaps in that as well. You come to a period like the second century AD when first century AD has been fairly peaceful. There's a conflict under Nero between the Romans and the Parthians, but it's restricted almost entirely to Armenia. And it's more really about supporting allies than directly fighting each other. But in the, the second century, Trajan marches down, captures Seleucia, captures Tessaphon, the Parthian city built next to it, where the king actually lives when he visits that area where he's crowned. Um, then... Under uh, Marcus Aurelius, his um, brother by adoption, Lucius Verus, goes and does the same thing. Septimius Severus does it. There are three major wars in that second century between Ro the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire, and there is no good narrative of any of them. We have tiny fragments, mostly epitomies of Dio. He wrote 100 years later, but the epitomies were made in 6th, 7th century AD. So much, much later, very simplified when the world had changed completely. So these big, big events and this huge change in how the empires are relating to each other isn't recorded at all. Wars of the third century, we don't know why the Romans won, why they, they lost in most of these battles. Um, even if you just look at what happens on the battlefield, there are quite good descriptions of the Battle of Carhai in 53 BC. Then you've got to jump to the fourth century AD before you get detailed descriptions of fighting by Ammianus against the Persians. And that's mostly sieges. The next battle described in any detail is in the 6th century by Procopius. So you're jumping huge periods of Roman history where actually you don't know anything like as much as you want to about what the Romans are thinking, what they're doing. So you're trying to piece together both sides. I, the aim of the book is to be very honest and open for what we don't know hmm. and to try and ask the same questions about both sides and take the evidence as far as it can go. So you can get more of an impression. There's enough archaeology, there's enough um, 
fragments of material, even things like um, you have preserved clay seals from um, where they were stored in a, a, a temple in Sanian Persian Empire that burned down and the clay seals are preserved. Now, obviously what burned was the documents, which okay may not have survived anyway, but if you'd had the papyri, it would have told you a lot about the administration, but it, it gives, because these are addressed to particular generals, commanders, satraps, the like of the Persian empire, it tells you about the organization. And it shows you very clearly that much later on, you've still got major Parthian noble families are dominating half these offices. So again, it reinforces this sense. It's basically the same empire ruled by a different dynasty. So you get glimpses like that. Um, but as I said, what I try to do is look at a situation, whether it's a fairly well-recorded one or another, and try and understand, well, from what they do, what is each side aiming at? What are they trying to do? What's the behavior? And you know, there are interesting things that, again, had not really jumped out to me before, but right the way through, from early contact all the way through until the, the last great war, Whenever there is a conflict, they're sending embassies back and forth all the time, trying to negotiate a peace settlement. They never really, but it tends to fail because whichever side's got the advantage, think, well, if I roll the dice one more time, I can double and it'll be fine. Of course, it doesn't work out that way. So then the other side thinks the same when they say, so eventually they exhaust each other and they do a deal. Um, but that's quite interesting. There's a, a restraint. These empires are very powerful but they don't seem to want to wage all-out war against the other. It's always for very limited objectives, very limited gains. It's for prestige is important. How this is perceived, particularly by your home audience, is important. But it's it's almost self-imposed restrictions and limits on the level of violence, the level of destruction, and the level of risk involved. That's interesting. Yeah. Were they um, were they intertwined at all in terms of trade relationships or anything like that, that, um, you know, I just think about sort of modern politics and geopolitics. And, you know, um, I, I think about the United States and China, for instance, and there's kind of a growing rivalry and, and almost, um, almost to the point where, uh, I mean, it's really heated up over the last number of years, but there's also so much interdependence that I think, everyone's kind of hesitant to escalate anything and just as you know and both sides are very strong so nobody really wants a war to break out so um you know was there was there something holding them back in terms of trade or was it was it more they just didn't want to expend the resources or take the risk to try to wage a larger war it's hard to um sort of you know divide up those spheres. Trade is a major factor all the way through. And you've got, as the Roman Empire emerges and develops from the first century onwards, it is this huge market and market for luxuries that come from further afield. So you want all the spices, you want you know the, the frankincense and the myrrh from most of it coming from Arabia, from that area. But you're also wanting silk, you're wanting pepper, you're wanting all these things that come from India, Sri Lanka, and China beyond. Now, in most respects, any of this coming over land is going to come through the Parthian Empire and then the Persian mm. Empire. So they benefit from it as well. And there, you know, there are some interesting, only from the, the Chinese side, documents of Chinese embassies or records of those that go to the discover the Parthians are there, then go to the Parthian Emperor's court. They're, they're aware that the Roman Empire is out there, but in part, perhaps either they ask the wrong questions or the locals and the Parthians thinking, well, we don't want you to know actually where it is, because we want to 
keep our place as the middlemen in this this arrangement. You know, they they believe it's 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 so far away they can never reach it in. You know, take a year's journey, this sort of thing. There's a, a group of Roman merchants appear at the Chinese emperor's court in the 160s, claiming to be sent by the Roman emperor. Mm-hmm. Though interestingly, all the goods they bring in that particular case are all things from outside the Roman Empire. But you've got, you know, silk particularly is is in such huge demand. From in Julius Caesar's day, this is a really spectacular luxury that shows how wealthy you are. But again, that's it's a sign of the prosperity of the Roman Empire. You know, it's it's like sort of Coca-Cola and blue jeans. More and more people can afford things, more and more, and it becomes common. That, you know, so you get these Roman sources complaining about the amount of Roman money that's going out of the empire to buy these luxury goods. So all of this is happening. It's mutually beneficial because the Parthians get lots of these luxuries as well, which they enjoy for their own sake or they enjoy for being, um, they they get um, money from them to, to pass them on. You've got trade going via the Indian Ocean. You've got cities like Palmyra in Syria that runs um, caravans that are escorted by armed men and that are organized by the city that go from the Roman Empire into the, Parthian Empire and then Sasanian Empire, and everybody's happy in the same way that when the Jews before AD 70 came from Babylonia to go to Jerusalem every year, they'd come in a big armed convoy to protect the offerings they were being. And again, nobody's bothered. They don't see this as an invasion. So you you can move between the two empires most of the time with relatively little restriction. It's just that the authorities will levy tolls on this sort of thing. So they benefit as well. So there's all this combination. There's this very complex trade routes, and there are some, particularly later on. You have at one point the Sasanian merchants try and ease the Romans out of the market in India, and also on the East African coast. And you get kingdoms there that are becoming plugged into this system because they have. And, you, and beyond the, the other side, I mean, you get um, amber from the Baltic goes through the Roman Empire, through the Parthian or Persian Empire to the Chinese court, where it becomes a symbol of grades of official. And silk goes all the way from China into the Roman Empire, and then workshops in Syria reweave it and dye it to make it finer and sell it back to the Chinese, who think that the Europeans have a different type of silk because it comes across a different quality. So there's lots of people out there making the opportunity to make money. You know, this is human nature playing itself out. And that's all going on. So generally speaking, this is a yes, it is something that probably deters either empire from thinking we don't want to destroy the other because actually I mean that's probably a bigger truth it's a lot easier for a king of kings to deal with a roman emperor or a roman emperor to deal with a king of kings than for each one to deal with lots of tribal groups lots of leaders lots of kings lots of warlords who are all rivals all fighting each other and might not last very long anyway you know if the persians do make an agreement with the romans they can be reasonably confident the romans will keep to that and if they don't it'll be obvious and we know you know, we complain to them or we fight them. So it's it's much easier. They're, they're, they're easier to deal with. And they come over time. They do tend to resemble each other more and more in their organization and their culture. But you can see each one views the other as almost as good as itself. So particularly by the sort of 5th century, 6th century AD, when you get these expressions of um, Persian ambassadors comparing the two empires to the two eyes of the world or the two lights of the world that illuminated the job of the King of Kings is to be the representative of Ahura Mazda, the Zoroastrian main god on earth. You know, your representative of truth of uh, rather than the lie, your representative of good, of justice. And you rule and you have just laws which you impose, and that stops people just murdering each other and doing all these things. And your 
you are the center of the world and you are more civilized, you are better than everyone else though, because outside is just chaos, is barbarism. Now the Romans obviously think of themselves. You can just change the word, you know, the, who it's about. And each empire thinks of itself in the same way. This We are the pinnacle of civilization, of what is good, of what is right. Probably reinforced when the empire, Roman Empire becomes Christian, but it's there before anyway. Um, and by the time it's become fully Christian, you've only got the Eastern Empire left, the difference in scale of power between the two is less. So it's much easier. Emperors and king of kings will then start referring to each other as brother, unimaginable in Augustus's day when you, you know, the Romans always had to be superior. Although no doubt the way the Parthians were telling everybody locally, they were presenting in a way that, that allowed them to be superior. So both sides can do this and it works for them. So they are very, so there's that sense of it's, they're the easiest people around to deal with. Yes, they're big. Yes, they're dangerous, but also you can respect them. You can understand them and okay. Yeah. They're not quite as good as you. They're not you. They're not um, the best empire, but they're the second best. And compared to anything else out there again, which is chaotic, which is barbaric and dangerous, you, you can just about deal with them. So all of these factors come together and there is lots of cultural interchange. And of course, later on, you will get, substantial Christian communities within the Persian Empire. And um, they are sometimes viewed with suspicion until they eventually sort of form their own organization, at which point it, it seems to be less of an issue. But it's so people move around and ideas move around and you have um, people will come into the Roman Empire, some of the you know, religious ideas like the um, those of the prophet Mani, who's from the Persian Empire and develops this mm. this religion of his own, it spreads into the Roman Empire. Um, and at times they're seen as potential spies, potential um, sort of fifth column. But most of the time it's it's not that serious. You know, the cult of Mithras, that if, you know, he's one of the major Zoroastrian gods. You've got many people called Mithridates amongst the Parthian royal family. It's a big deal. You have this whole Greco-Roman version of this cult that's probably like a lot of you know, modern versions of Indian cults, this something it, it it probably doesn't bear that much resemblance to how people do it, where it's 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 actually you know it's it's grown up where its origins and roots are. But it's you can see Mithraic temples up on Hadrian's Wall in Roman London, all this sort of thing. It's so ideas go both ways, and goods go both ways all the time. There is a lot of travel, a lot of connection, and it comes back to this again. Again, they talk to each other a lot, so. There is that sense that if you're willing to do that, you're seeing this these people as different to everybody else out there. You don't spend that much time talking to some tribe on the Danube. Well, and and you mentioned the religious aspects, and I am I only have a couple more questions for you, but I did want to touch on that. And my my impression, not knowing much about the Roman Empire, um, is that it was in the early days, you know, or for the first few centuries or whatnot, a pagan type adaptation of the Greek religion, similar ideas um, to their gods and everything. And then it, you know, became Christian, uh, you know, um, I guess gradually and then suddenly with um, Constantine. And um, it, it, I guess my first question is, is that basic, the basic, is that basic impression correct? And what was the evolution like in the um, Persian uh, areas with the Zoroastrian and and all of that? It's, I mean, it, it's always it's complicated, and it's something that I, while I touch on, I decided early on I couldn't really 
explore in full detail, because if you go into all the controversies about just what form of Zoroastrianism is, is prevalent under the Parthians, and then how does it change with the Sasanian Persians, where there clearly is some change and it becomes more prominent, and particularly um, the emphasis on fire temples and um, Ahura Mazda Mithras is there, but less significant. Um, there, there seem to be changes, but you also have suppression of the Manichaeists, although at first, Shapur I has taken the Prophet Mani with him on um expeditions so it might not be as simple there's a lot and you can't really go into the sort of the the belief system aspect because there's a lot we don't know and a lot is is debated and similarly with the roman side i don't go into detail about all the various um controversies and schisms within the church because if you start trying to explain all of these things yes it's interesting but it's taking you away from the the rivalry it it takes so long it is so complicated but yes broadly speaking you have a roman empire that is polytheistic um it's yes roman religion has shows a great deal of influence of, of of greek religion but it it also develops and they have that capacity to absorb cults within other areas so you find um you know that i'm uh, i'm in south wales the other side of the bristol channel there's bath um the city that had the roman the where the hot springs there was a roman bath complex dedicated to sulis minerva so you you know you you take a local goddess sulis and you think oh well, she's a bit like minerva so you you um move the two cults together at least for an official version how the locals think about it who knows um but they absorb people. They don't. There are very few groups that are suppressed on religious grounds. The Druids are one. Um, there's probably a political element to that as well. But also, this is a group, at least some of whom practice human sacrifice, and that doesn't help stability with the, in the, within the empire. So it's um, and it's something the Romans have pretty much stopped doing by then. I mean, you, you've had the last. Um, recorded case at the end of the second century BC, formally done by the Roman Republic. Uh, but it's, and you've sort of, you, you're arguing what, what are gladiatorial games by that? Is there any sacrificial element left? But it basically speaking, they absorb most of cults. Um, there is this control of suppression of um, the Jewish population, particularly after 70 and the rebellion, the destruction of the temple. Um, but even then that's partly because religious taboos stop a lot of Jewish people from their, their aristocracy from joining the Roman system and becoming army officers, becoming governors, senators, eventually all this sort of thing, mm. uh, because you can't do, you know, you've got Tiberius Alexander, um, an Alexandrian Jew who does this um, and becomes governor, but um, it's rare. Most don't, um, but otherwise you're pretty much allowed to do what you like. The suppression of Christianity sort of comes from that, but also that sense that, well, they're atheists because they reject the gods because they're saying there's only their God, not everybody else. And that's a threat to that. That old perception, you can, you know, you can go right back to um, the city-states and the concerns that even somebody like Socrates, who starts to make you question things, is that a worry? Will you upset the gods? And, you know, we just not do this um, because for general prosperity. So that sort of sense of this relationship is all underlying that. Within, but both, both empires include so many different areas and cultures, and in the main, they let people get on with their own traditional practices. The Sasanian dynasty claims some particular connection with a fire temple in what's now Fars province in, in Iran, uh, because it's just the heartland where they first appear. And they do then much more explicitly in the Parthians, you know, the, the big monuments, you have 
sculpture showing um, whilst Ardashir the first, the first uh, Sasanian king, is triumphing. Next to him, he's being handed a, a wreath, which so again he's being handed a Greek symbol by Ahura Mazda, the Zoroastrian god. So it's a sense of legitimacy, but it brings in these Hellenic traditions as well and imagery. But now you are his representative on Earth, and this it's done in a way. Ahura Mazda was never represented in the same sort of human way, slightly bigger, but not much bigger than human form. But basically wearing ordinary clothes. Achaemenid Persians didn't do that. They had a very distinct set of imagery. So you are showing yourself as and you you state in your inscriptions you are appointed you know you are representative of Ahura Mazda on Earth, so there is that element of we are divinely recognised. That is why, which is of course is a very convenient thing for a dynasty that just fought its way to power in a civil war. So, how much of this is is a does it start with religion? How much does it become religion? Because that's useful. You could say you know you could make the same case one way or the other for Constantine. Um, what's what's calculation? What's what's faith? Do we need to separate them at all? It's and that's pushed on. But again, they don't suppress everybody. Again, Jewish community remains there. Christian community will remain. Groups like the um, the Manichaeus, and later on, you have this Mazdakite movement, which um, seems to be a peculiar form of within the Zoroastrianism that is briefly flourishes and one king of kings favors them, but then ends up in a very brutal suppression. It's supposed to be to do. It might be to do with challenging property rights and the dominance of the aristocracy or at least of, of the it's it's again it's it's very complicated and it occasionally breaks out and becomes a big issue in the same way that sometimes the schisms within the church lead an emperor to suppress a group declared as as heretical though again you don't really get civil wars fought over that it, it's sort of it, it's it disturbs things uh, in the same way that with one possible exception None of the civil wars post-Constantine, the Roman civil wars, are Christian against pagan or anything like that. It, it just doesn't. People don't divide along those lines when it comes to the political side of things. So it's 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 complicated, but you do get um, some evidence where there, there you have um, a man describing himself as priest, high priest of high priests, um, who claims to have done quite a bit and be favoured by Shapur the First, but is actually more prominent under one of his weaker successors and talks about going into the Roman Empire and instructing the Zoroastrians there how to how to um, run their cult properly, mm. creating new fire temples. It's only at the very end where you have this big war between Heraclius and Khosrow, where the Romans have been pushed to such an extent that actually Heraclius starts telling his soldiers that if you die in battle fighting the Persians, you will go straight to heaven. You will have a martyr's death, effectively, that you will qualify suffering for your faith. Um, that's when, but that's right in the last few years when the Romans have, you know, sort of not got much left to lose. And interestingly enough, when he comes to fight the Arab armies a few years later, he doesn't make the same appeal then. So the Persians have been singled out as this sort of, you know, very basic, very deep threat that are different. But on the whole, whilst occasionally the emperor will say, I need to look after Christians within Persian territory, stop doing this and use that as a pretext for negotiation, threats, even war. Uh, ironically enough, sometimes for groups of Christians who would be heretics in the Roman Empire, it's still, it doesn't seem to be the driving force between relations between the two empires. Hmm. You're someone who's been studying uh, ancient Rome for uh, a long time and written multiple books about it and knows more about it than 99.9% of people. So when you took on this subject, I'm curious, did anything 
in, in the process of researching and writing this book, did anything really surprise you, um, uh, you know, that, that you just didn't expect to encounter uh, as far as what you learned? A lot. I mean, I, I came because, of course, big debates within amongst Roman historians. It's all about Roman imperialism and, you know, are the Romans just innately aggressive? And then do the Romans ever decide to defend their empire? You know, there's this whole grand strategy debate. Do you sit down, try and organize the empire? Your armies are there. As Aelius Aristides would say in the second century AD, they're like walls around a city. They're there to protect us, but we're not interested in conquest anymore you look at this and suddenly you see, well, hang on a minute. As soon as you look, I'd always assume that people like Crassus are going off to conquer the Parthian Empire until you look more closely at the sources and think, well, actually, no, he's he's into, he was trying to intervene in a Parthian civil war that's over before he gets there. But probably the expectation is go in, get some plunder, win some victories, impose a settlement on them, perhaps make your own man king of kings and an ally and go home. And that there's really very... There's no good evidence at any stage that anyone, even though you have the Emperor Trajan is supposed to have seen a ship sailing off from the Gulf towards India and cried because he was too old to follow Alexander, he takes some territory. He was creating a province of Assyria uh, when it all goes horribly wrong and then soon afterwards he dies. But he's only taking even quite a small part of the Parthian Empire then. It, it's it's that sense of limitation was a, a big thing that I did not expect at all because I thought... Yes, that might happen eventually, but a lot of these wars, particularly early on from both sides, were probably far more meant to be far more decisive. So that was a surprise. Um, the way the Parthian and then Sasanian empires worked is something I hadn't really looked at. And there's fascinating stuff that's come out in, in recent years, like this monument, the Gorgon Wall, which is to the east of the Caspian Sea. And it was a Persian defense against nomadic groups from the north. And it's it's longer than Hadrian's Wall. It's this huge thing mm. with apparently permanent forts on it, implying a large garrison of these must be professional, semi-professional, these full-time soldiers that all our literary sources tell us that, the, or at least imply the Persians don't have. So you're, you're suddenly getting that sense of a very different organization. Another thing that, again, had not really sunk in is if you look at it from a military point of view, when they do fight, um, it, 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 it had not really occurred to me that we have a description of the Battle of Carhai and then nothing else for any Roman battle in any sort of detail between the Romans and Parthians. And we just generalized from this first encounter that probably isn't typical. But the way the armies, particularly by the time we've got to the Sasanians, their armies become very like Roman armies. And over time, Roman armies become very like them. So if you think of the, the quintessential Parthian, as far as the Romans are concerned, as a horse archer who dashes forward, shoots you a bit, shoots you a bit more, then runs away, never gets caught, but keeps on coming back and weakening you, weakening you, and eventually you're too weak, and then he'll charge you down. But it's about space. It's very much the steps way of fighting. You know, mm. it's don't, don't fight and die for a patch of earth because who cares about that? What matters is winning. And you win by being clever, by being more skillful, and you wear the enemy down compared to the Roman legionary, which sort of follows in the hoplite tradition, let's go forward, hit them hard, hammer them. And then you get to third century Sasanian armies where you've got war elephants and where your horse archers barely get mentioned. Nearly all the cavalry are the heavily armored cataphracts of Clibinari that have been there before, but are very definitely not charging and then run away people. These are charging and try and slog their way through. 
and the elephants in particular. So you've got an army that's as confrontational as the Romans at this point. And it seems to be this, you know, you can look at it and see this reaction as each side gains an advantage, the other side works out a way to deal with it. And then the others think of something else and both become good at siege craft. But by the time you've got to Procopius, both armies are relying overwhelmingly on armoured cavalry. And if anything, the Romans are making more use of horse archers, um, usually Huns and people like that they've recruited, than the Sasanian Persians. So there's always a lot. When you go to to any topics, you've never really looked at it in the same detail as you do to, to write a book. But with this one, I found those sorts of things. But also there were lots of periods I've... You know, I've tended to work more on the Roman Republic and the early empire than later on. I've done relatively little on the Eastern Roman Empire, particularly sort of 5th and 6th, 7th centuries, that sort of time. So all that's interesting. Even looking, I mean, it's not something I can go into in great detail, but those early years of the expansion of the Arab armies, that's not quite what you expect because you have the image of the great tide of Islam sweeping into Spain, you have the reconquest, you have the Crusades, that sense of deep-seated hostility between the two monotheistic faiths, which is just not there early on. I mean, most of the, the Eastern Empire folds fairly easily, as it had done to Persian armies a few years before. So maybe it's just thinking, well, it'll be a few years and they'll go away again. But that you find that there are... Um, you know, the Arab armies are mixed and you have Christian and Jewish soldiers and some pagans as well in these armies fighting. So it, it's, the thing about history is the more you learn about it, you realize first, there's so many things we don't know, but also there's lots of little bits that you hadn't realized or you hadn't put together. So there's something very nice about refreshing for me because I've tended to do more detailed books on, you know, somebody's life or a, um, a topic Covering all this time gives you a very different perspective. And you do some of the, the big controversies and the debates in Roman history just seem the obvious, the answer seems obvious when you look at a distance because you can see what they're doing. And, you know, all these grand theories, oh, the Romans didn't think that way. Well, sorry, this is what they did. <laughs> Probably that's, uh, you know, that one needs to be rethought. And, and I have to say, when it comes to a subject like Rome, it's such a, it's such a vast subject that, in my mind, I think of thousands of pages. I don't know where to begin. You know, it's it's difficult for me sometimes to read just a history straight through. I need some kind of a theme or an angle to then, you know, kind of expand from there. And so I'm that's one of the reasons I'm excited about this book. Um, I'll remind listeners that we're talking to historian Adrian Goldsworthy about his brand new book, Rome in Persia, the 700 year rivalry, which is now available in the United States. Adrian, is there anything else that we didn't cover that you wanted to add before we wrap up today? No, I mean, as an author, you're always desperate to try and summarize the whole book in whatever time you've got. And it's not possible. It's a big book because it's a big topic. So um, as I say, I'm, I'm fast. I'm, Fascinated to see how this one does because it is a it's a slightly different topic. Whereas there have been plenty of books on Alexander, there isn't another book on this theme, not on the whole thing. Um, and I think it's interesting. And I found myself surprised and more and more interested as I went along. But I, I it's a, it's a lot to deal with because you are dealing with a very big chunk of history, and some of it is mm. not very familiar, even to so many people like myself who you know, spent a lot of their life working on the, the Romans of nature history. There are bits I came across that hadn't looked at, and you start to... Uh, another thing that's interesting in the book is the same places crop up again and again and again over the centuries. And 
once you understand the topography, it's often because this is the way that armies or trade has to go. This is the way you can travel. But it means it's rather like the number of wars fought in, in Belgium, Holland, the Low Countries in, in Europe over the centuries, because that's the way you go. Um, it's, um, it's, it, you can communicate, you can travel that way, whereas you can't by other routes. So things just tend to keep on happening in the same places. So uh, so as I say, I hope it, it's something that will interest people, because it certainly, I found it, I knew it would be interesting, but it was it was more exciting even than I expected. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I, for one, can't wait to read it. Like I said at the beginning, I don't think there's anybody out there uh, better at this kind of thing than you. I was blown away by the Alexander Phillip book, so um, I can't wait to check this out as well. So thanks for coming on, Adrian, and hopefully uh, we'll talk again sometime. Right. Again, thanks for inviting me. Thank you to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Thanks for listening.